I'm here with Stephen Page, who is the chief executive and publisher of Faber. Of Faber. Welcome to this microphone. Thank you. We talked about the impact of the internet on uh, publishers, and my take is that publishers are in jeopardy because, first of all, the big names that you've helped to create have such a brand that they may not necessarily need you as a publisher because they may, they may not want to make much more money than they're already making, and if they, they see ways of doing that, then I think it puts them in quite a position of power. That, that's the one side. And then the other side is that young or unknown authors now don't have to genuflect in front of gatekeeping publishers who determine whether or not their stuff is worthy of being sold. What do you take on that? I'll take them in reverse order, which is, I think, the, uh, the opportunity for writers to reach an audience without going through a publisher will remain extremely limited. I think publishers' publishers' main jobs are to do with making choices which they largely do extremely well. Secondly, to, to make the thing that they've chosen better. The relationship between a writer and an editor is, in some places, still absolutely critical. The third part of it is that we are experts at marketing. We know how to find readers for writers. It doesn't work all the time, but most of the time we find readerships for, the, for writers. Fourth thing is that we pay advances, so we bankroll some you know, some writers. Some writers don't earn enough through their writing to do that, but in the main, publishers are prepared to put money up up front for writers to write, and no one else is prepared to do that. And uh, the final. Oh, sorry, no one else is prepared to do that. But what about Amazon? And what about uh, Sony with their ebook? I mean, are they currently going after content themselves to then make available to the people that will be buying these ebooks because they're coming out with a new version in yeah. spring? Yeah, they'll be after content, absolutely. And their major sources of supply will be publishers. Now, it might be that in an iTunes-like model that you know any book that's produced by anybody in any way will be available. But availability is not the beginning and the end of a writer making a life which is affordable. But and doesn't that increase the importance of people like me in the media to promote the quality of work that these new writers may wish to, to promote? There's an Im implication in your question that publishers are failing to support quality. I don't think that's true at all. You know, at Faber, we look at something like 5,000 novels a year, something like 5,000 new poetry collections a year, 2,500 new children's books a year. Largely, that comes via agents. But on the poetry front, not at all. We look at a huge, and we look at all of it. Um, and, and by we, you mean who? The editorial team at Faber. And uh, what kind of strict criteria do you impose on hiring those people? We hire people who appear to have excellent taste and have some track record in making good judgments. I mean, in, in poetry, you're not making judgments about that book that you're buying making you money. You're making decisions about that poet's likelihood of becoming part of the canon, if you like. But you're not saying that by publishing it, you make it part of the canon, because one knows that that would be arrogant and that that, that doesn't necessarily last. But look at James Joyce, the typical. His book is probably the, the greatest book of the 20th century, and he got turned down by 27 publishers. Sure. Yeah, as did you know, many, many other many writers. Others. That's right. So but, you missed but some, he, but... They did get published. You just happened to miss the greatest one. Did he come to Faber? Uh, yes. In fact, his early work was published by Faber, and T.S. Eliot looked long and hard at Ulysses, and in the end just couldn't quite make his mind up to do it and regretted it very strongly because someone else snapped it up. Or was that, he afraid of getting sued? Yeah, there was always that issue. There was a danger of that. But also, with Eliot, that wouldn't have been the case because he was an extremely uh, bold publisher in many ways. And I, I think he, 
Faber would have been one of a number of businesses saying someone in the end is going to have to publish this thing. How do you do it? How do you make it work? And is it is it what it's claimed to be? But, you know, the argument can't stand that Ulysses was missed. It was not. It was published. But it was initially, as you know, published by a very brave independent publisher. Mm. So I, I do think it's incredibly important that you have a thriving independent publishing community because you are right to say that the judgments made by bigger businesses where the editor is more remote from the centre of the business can lead to the how promotable is the author conversation, not what's the longevity of this work. And I guess independent publishers who are much, much closer to that hub, they tend to be editorially led or at least publishing led. Those companies are there to create diversity in the market. They're not a safety blanket. They're actually forthright and avant-garde in their opinions. But they don't, it's, it's so difficult when you're in a general publishing business to talk about the way that you serve the long-term uh, good of literature or, or culture. Because I think if you do start talking like that, you, you often fail to serve writers as well as you could. I think what writers want for a publisher to be is, a, yes, you want publishers who make brave choices and are close to the writing and trust the writer's instincts. But then you want a really well-honed, commercial, modern publishing company to get it in front of readers. So I think that kind of crop of very great independent British publishers who went into corporate ownership in the 1980s and early 90s, they were just caught unable to adapt to an increasingly competitive market. Same happened at the end of the 90s, if you look at that, John Murray, Harville and others. But now you look and you see a group of young maverick publishers led by fairly young ex-corporate leaders but also people like Jamie Bing who's the publisher at um, Canongate You've got Profile Books, Short Books, Atlantic Books, Faber, Bloomsbury and there's a really rich range of publishers who do not just make judgment calls based on this year's financial targets and do not you know, have shareholders who don't task us with 10% growth top and bottom line. So Which is wonderful to hear. Yeah, and I think in some ways your concerns about good things getting well published, you have some peace of mind that that independent community exists. Now, I'm very optimistic about it continuing to exist, but the market is extremely harsh in the United Kingdom. Very tough. You mean in terms of discounts? Just the, yeah, just what consumers are being asked to pay for books. Mm -hmm. And also, I think there are very narrow channels to readers, by which I mean... There aren't a large number of bookshops buying books. There are individual buyers at a range, quite a narrow range of booksellers dominating the market. Independent bookselling is about 15 to 18% of the market. So you can't break a book when you don't have that support from the chains, largely speaking. That said, we have an extremely supportive media in the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. and I mean, you've got the best books sections easily in the world. I mean, we, yeah. we, uh, we book lovers are thankful for the, the internet simply because we now we can access the Guardian Books mm. Unlimited. No, and we're very lucky. And you have the British Council too. And the way that they promote your writers is, is, uh, is absolutely uh, yes, it's wonderful. One of the happy heritages of Commonwealth is, you know, uh, <laughs> is that we have a, still an intimate connection with the writers coming out of Britain and the way that they're voices can be heard. But, but equally, you know, when you look at the strength of Commonwealth writers coming into the UK market, it's still, it, I mean, the Canadian writers still have an extremely strong position in the United Kingdom. Which is sort of ironic because we don't appreciate them at home. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. maybe that's always but the case. Do you, do you publish any Canadian? Canadian? We publish Rehentin Mystery. Um, oh, okay. And 
We've just bought, in fact, a terrifically good first novel by a Canadian uh, called Madeleine Tien, a novel called Certainty. And it's the, you know, just one of those thrilling moments. You read such an assured voice on a debut novel. There have been stories, and we've been reading the stories for a while and expressing some interest. But then the novel arrives and your heart beats and you pray it's what you'd hoped it would be and it's everything that it could be and more. Oh, great. And it's not, it's, in some strange way, it's, a, it's an assuredness of voice that sometimes we struggle to find among British writers. You, know, mm-hmm. you find it in the Irish writers, you find it with the Canadian, you find it with Indian writers. But, uh, it's a bit ironic, isn't it, that all of the, the, the colonials are coming home to roost absolutely. physically but also with their, with their literature. Yes. Oh, no, I think Britain has always been... The English particularly have always found it easier to take their perspective on themselves from the outside looking in rather than from the inside looking at. That's why satire is so strong. You know, the English are very good at satire because mm. it's a kind of way we can laugh while we <laughs> realise who the hell we are. And uh, but but in some way we're as you know like I guess most Anglo-Saxon cultures we have some difficulties with intellectual life. You know, in a way that we baffle the Italians and the French and the Germans. I think when they wonder quite why our intellectual life stops short in some way that isn't embraced by the wider community, the culture. I don't understand. Well, there's, I guess there's some way in which writers who, who can just be judged as excellent don't have quite the cachet as writers who sell and are excellent. I think that's... That's material, that's capitalism. That's uh, yeah, and I think British capitalism is pretty voracious and pretty widespread. So we have a... And that, but you, you look at that kind of academy version of French society, that mm. just doesn't exist in Britain. It's funny, because uh, uh, Julian Barnes is such a, such a hero over there, and he's sort of... Well, he's not second-class citizen here, but he hasn't won the book or anything. No, he's not been acknowledged as, no. as, as he might. Why is um, that? I should. Uh, I, I think his books are always books of ideas, and uh, it is hard to say, isn't it? But in some way, he he hasn't benefited from that thing which always seems to loom in the air of somebody who fits the winning of things. People have their moment, and for whatever reason, that hasn't happened. But I mean, you know, most writers in Britain would kill for Julian's audience and for his talent. So you know, in the end, talent and quality in that way, I think, will out. He's now a Richard and Judy choice. He's, oh he's, he, he's, he's stamp of approval. He's, well, it's not a stamp no, of approval. No, a stamp of uh, money, money, the printing of money. But it's, it's, it's an acceptance of the idea that he, he can be very widely read yeah. and be excellent. And I think when you're publishing literature, for instance, publishing Kashu Ishiguru for us is so heartening because you know that Ish writes the book that can be written and only that. Mm. He's an uncompromising writer in that way. His books are painful and troubling but he reaches a massive audience. For some reason, his progress as a writer in our society has won him huge trust among readers who might play it safer otherwise. He somehow speaks to us without us worrying about being told such difficult truths about society, about people. He reassures in some way. But having said that, there's nothing in his approach to the writing or the writing that does that. So it's an interesting question as to quite why has it always been that he is accepted by that quality mainstream audience. They go with, they don't step off the bus saying this is all a bit too painful or difficult or they go, they keep with him. It's like going to a, a European movie instead of an American one, there isn't necessarily a, a happy ending, but mm. for those of us who don't really care for that, it's, it's a much deeper, yeah. more interesting experience. Yes, and if literature is to respond to the state of the world, it's only so long that we can have these misery memoirs and these, you know, they'll be burned out fairly fast because a kind of voyeurism of other people's pain might be one way of not actually acknowledging the difficulties of the world as we face it, is to look back at other people's horrible experiences, you know. Uh, in the end, we will have to confront our own experience of life, and that's where fiction 
I'm certain will, will play its part. And if you look at the American market where fiction has been so difficult since 9-11, I just I have such confidence in the medium of fiction that it will in the end come back and tell stories that help people to, to deal with voices that will help them to, to understand their own experiences. It's so extraordinary, too, that when I come over here, you know, I see some of my relatives, and I'm just astounded by the impact that the Second World War had on my parents, your parents' mm. Uh, mm. generation, and I still don't know that that's been, been mined, but it was only 50 or 60 years ago. Yes. And so it's had such a dramatic effect on them and us, mm. and we're just sort of recuperating and trying to make things right with our children. Do you... Uh, do you have any themes that you look at? Do you, do you guide what the writers that are in your stable might, might look at? No, or is that not that n- never. No. no, I mean, I, I, <laughs> it's, it's certainly uh, not a naive question because, uh, of course, some publishers do seek to guide their writers mm-hmm. to write, particularly on the commercial end of fiction and, mm-hmm. and the Second World War, war and love. Mm-hmm. Uh, war and peace. War and, yes, <laughs> these things, which is actually war and love. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- these, these are perennially commercial topics. Mm-hmm. Well, you hit but, the heart and the, yeah. and the depths of existence. But, you know, we might suggest to a writer that they respond to something that they can't hear themselves. really important example of that was Sebastian Barry's novel, A Long, Long Way, where Sebastian had been writing novels about his relatives' plays as well. And his editor at the time, John Riley, just dropped the big hint that it was time he wrote about his, his relative Willie Dunn's experience of the First World War as an Irish volunteer. And out of it came an absolutely extraordinary book. But in some way, Sebastian needed the editor to say, do it, do it. I'm thinking of Pat Barker, too. I mean, she covered the the First World War. Yes, that's right. Second World War, I mean, the Second World War here, I think we we remain in its shadow because it's the post-colonial moment for Britain as well. It's the point at which it was impossible to go on suggesting that that Victorian industrial model could go on. And so the moving away from many colonial responsibilities, I think, has left an awful lot of opened wounds and difficult questions and responsibilities that that Britain has never really moved on from. So in some ways you can understand there's an arrested view of the Second World War where things actually were simpler. You knew where we stood. We were fighting something that was so unequivocally evil that it gave us the unity of being good. It's rather like America now trying to create some sense United States of America trying to create some sense of unity of purpose against something that is branded as purely evil. Well, you look at the European response to 9-11 and it was, of course, quite a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, speaking of the bombings in London, uh, I picked up a, a copy of uh, Incendiary. Mm. You didn't publish that, did you? No, we didn't. Yeah, I don't know how the sales did on that, but uh, it's quite, quite an astounding coincidence that this thing came out. Well, within It was about fictional bombings and then within days of him actually publishing it or, or I can't prior remember. to I can't remember, I can't either, remember but, but I, I know that interestingly when we looked at that book oh you did look uh, at it yeah it was submitted it pretty widely yeah oh, we decided not to publish it. that it wasn't I mean of course it wasn't such a stroke of genius to suggest that someone somewhere at some time would no. do what they did and uh, timing then was it was more of it a was extraordinary timing yeah. but uh, I was it a decent it wasn't a decent novel or I haven't read it just, of course I just collected it wasn't so to our read. taste uh, it wasn't to our taste <laughs> Uh, if we could just move along then to the supermarkets, it seems to me then, just having listened to the panel discussion with uh, with others in the industry, that various channels of sales for publishers uh, seem to be opening up in, in ways that they, mm. they they haven't in the past. I wonder if you could uh, just comment about the impact that that could have on your your business. Well, it's um, and what you're doing with say 
to these, these supermarkets, but also e-books and Sony. I'd, I'd love to hear what you're doing and if you're in discussions with them. I mean, the first thing to say about supermarkets is that they have a terrible thirst for selling books, you know, and uh, for the reader and for publishers, that's good news. But it's complicated because they carry a narrow range and they see books, the Harry Potter model, for instance, as, a, as just a means of encouraging consumers to buy all sorts of things. Uh, so Harry Potter and actually Delia Smith before that and Jamie Oliver this Christmas, these are all, they're, they're barely sprats to catch them out for. They're, they're big, loss-leading ventures to, to, to create excitement around their wider offering. Now, there's nothing new about that. In the store. Yeah, nothing new about that. But for a publisher like Faber, where High Street's willingness to commit to any great level, you know, so our High Street booksellers... Canadians may be unfamiliar with High Street... Oh, sorry, OK, book, so range-holding booksellers, people who set up to Waterstones, Borders, Otakas and... So the big um, box yeah, exactly. chapters in Canada. Chapters, exactly. So places where you see a wide range of books. And you'd expect, if you heard a book reviewed on the radio or talked about you'd expect to go to that shop and find it, which is not the case with supermarkets who carry perhaps, you know, 50 titles and, and a range of sort of cheap cookery and that sort of thing. Um, the, the danger, of course, of the, all the time the cream being taken off the top of the milk by, you know, supermarkets participating and making bestsellers bigger and bigger is that it leaves those high street booksellers with less income from the bestsellers, less profit from bestsellers, and they have to work harder in a much less profitable area of offering range. Mm. And in the past, that range always used to be supported by the success of bestsellers. Was there, was there an understanding then? You guys make uh, X amount of money on these bestsellers and you will purchase a wider range of, of I think, titles? I don't think it was an, as, as, as bold as that. I think before the netbook agreement went, when price fixing, so 1995, the netbook agreement is abandoned and that basically sets a recommended retail price across the industry. So Tesco's would be selling that book at exactly the same price as Waterstones and, and they Smith's, have to. and they have to, mm -hmm. and there were separate rules for book clubs. That went in 1995, and I have to say it put a huge amount of energy and fire into the industry. We suddenly had price as a further tool for exciting readers, and so that's when you saw the explosion of multi-buys, so your three books for two. Mm. Um, and they got three for two of everything in England here. Yeah, I saw three for two on... Um, uh, on kind of medical supplies the other day, uh, and I was thinking, you know, yeah, I've got a cut toe, I'll buy some plasters, or maybe I'll have some, you know, echinacea while I'm at it. Yeah, or maybe know. I'll put three plasters on instead of one. <laughs> That's right, why yeah. not? And um, so I, uh, there's, there's a complicated relationship now between making the big books bigger, but wanting range support from those high street retailers, and that's tough. And meanwhile, on the other end of it, Amazon are picking up the early adopters, essentially. So if you have um, a first novel that's brilliantly reviewed or uh, a book by a media personality, you know, the first two or three days of sales are quite often scooped by Amazon. Mm. Pre-sales as well, you know, you just log your order with. You um, mean that they're online before you can physically go to the store and pick them up? They, it might or be available, you can place an order. So mm. you can have made your purchase. So. Mm. If on, like we had with, say, Ricky Gervais's book, um, Flanimals, Ricky Gervais, a big comedian here, has a big series called The Office. He did a book with us. He was on Parkinson on Saturday night. We published on Monday morning. So that's Michael Parkinson, the greatest interviewer in the world. That's right. right. <laughs> for, for our Canadian audience. So by Monday morning, Amazon already had a pile of orders that mm. were dispatched and with those customers by Tuesday. Mm. So the speed with which, or the reliability with which uh, someone can say, oh, I've just seen something on television, I'd like to make that 
mind, they can do it without having to remember to do it Monday lunchtime when they're mm -hmm. on their lunch break. Mm. So it's, it's convenient. It's very convenient, mm. and it's it's also a hundred percent foolproof. You know, if you order it, it will come. Is pretty much the people's experience of Amazon. You reliable, know, yeah. Very reliable. Mm. So I, I think um, you know there are a range of difficulties and choices that that, that are facing publishers and high street retailers. Mm. You mentioned the, the Sony ebook. I mean, everybody is kind of get themselves in line on that. Uh, I, I think everyone's really impressed by what they've seen of the e the Sony ebook, but we've had many false dawns in the world of ebooks. Yeah. But certainly, the sort of prehistoric age of electronic publishing for general books is done. Uh, we are now in a much more um, we're, we're in the early stages of doing it, rather than wondering what it's going to be like to do it. But the business models are far from understood or sorted mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. The I mean, the way I see it is that uh, that these e-books are going to replace the, the paperback segment at least. Uh, us collectors, hopefully, will still get hardbound uh, first editions to fondle and uh, put on our shelves. And, but I see Sony as having such a beautiful, unique selling proposition. Don't cut down all those trees. Get one of these. Yes. Uh, yeah, and I think uh, that there are the environmental issue is quite interesting. I think consumers will take the the biggest book buying community in this country are men between I think it's forty five and the end of life. I'm, I'm, um, I'm very surprised that over in price in terms of money spent that is a huge audience. In Canada, as I understand, it's women that, that women then the take clubs. out the big. I guess we look at chunks of age demographics. Mm. Uh, women between thirty five plus by a huge amount of the fiction but men in their post family men they're buying a huge amount of high priced books non-fiction reference and fiction I'm thinking of yeah, fiction, yeah, yeah you probably are. more yeah. women than men buy books and they spend more money on it but when you look at the demographics and if that's a key demographic that's not necessarily a demographic that's going to rush to an, an e-book model they're mm -hmm. quite book consumers they're sentimental and romantic about books but clearly and wanting to have uh, expensive wallpaper yes right yeah, yeah. and uh, and they maybe have more time but uh, clearly it would be deeply naive of a, of a modern publisher to suggest that there isn't going to be a mixed economy of digital and physical books and the progress progress of digital will be upwards in terms of its share of what we do. Mm -hmm. How fast that happens, no one knows. No one knows. But I think publishers, while most people who end up working in publishing, certainly people like myself, come at it with an, an almost unhealthy level of love for the object, which yeah. is a book, yeah. we have to separate ourselves as readers from ourselves as publishers. Okay, yeah. I, want to hear, I want to talk about your love of uh, who do you collect? Um, and who do you love? Who do I love? And Do you collect? I, I, I buy Faber... Hardback poetry. You get, you get like a company discount, right? No, I have to go out and find it in the in the world. But obviously, the great poets of the Faber list in the twenties to present, Jeffrey Faber and T. S. Eliot, began the business of publishing the great modernists in 1926, and it's it's still alive today. You know, our most recent debut writer, so someone like Nick Laird, has picked up prize after prize, and 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 is an extremely exciting prospect. He's the husband of Zadie Smith. Right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Do you think he wrote all her good stuff? Or? <laughs> Definitely not. She's yeah. she's a massive talent herself. I, I really loved her last book on beauty. But uh, for myself, my passions are for American literature from the early part of the 20th century. I'm a big Russians from the 19th mm -hmm. century. Yeah. But also of the modern writers, I, I'm thrilled by the crop we have at Faber at the moment. Can you give us a few uh, examples? Obviously, difficult to be partial, and I'll forget. Mm. But this year, this this year, for instance, we'll we, pick your favourites. Well, Ishiguro, I've mentioned Peter mm. Carey, I've uh, is is a really important writer on the Faber list. 
this new generation of people like Andrew Hagen, Rachel Cusk, John Lanchester, there's DBC Pierre. You know, we have a, such a rich list. These are Booker Prize winners, a number of them, and they're also on the, the Granta Top 20, right? Yes. Uh, this is a whole other area that we could, I'd love to get into, but I, I won't. Well, as and you, that Granta list, you know, we have now, I think David Peace is a, another one of that Granta list, as is um, Ben Rice, and Faber has, I think it's five of that 20 writers. Oh, wow. And this is our job, you know, this yeah. is our job, is to try and mine talent of the future, give them their best chance. And going back to that question of, do people need publishers? Well, when I get up in the morning and go to Faber, I don't have any doubt mm -hmm. that those writers believe that they need us. And they're not just that, that we are in a genuine partnership, that there is something authentic underneath it all. People who staff Faber want people to read good books, great literature to survive. And I should say, as a reader, I do see the Faber imprint as a... Well, it's an endorsement of good writing. Thanks very much for your time. Pleasure. I've been talking to Stephen Page, who is the CEO and publisher of Faber. I enjoyed it. Uh, likewise.